Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Mike Fry. Mike has worked in the field of animal welfare for more than 20 years. In fact, his family founded the first no-kill animal shelter in Minnesota in 1977, a shelter he ran himself for more than 15 years. He also started Minnesota's first large-scale TNR program and continues to help save shelter pets as the founder and senior consultant at No-Kill Learning, which helps animal shelters increase their life-saving. He also hosts a National Day of No-Kill in shelters all over the United States, which saves tens of thousands of animals every June 11th. Mike, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I think this is going to be a very, very interesting conversation today, but I first wanted to find out how did you specifically get involved in animal welfare way, way back when, like me, over 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as it, it says in my bio, my family, actually, my mother started and founded the first no-kill shelter in Minnesota. I was a wee lad then, but have always been interested in animals. And as my professional career expanded, my interest in the animal welfare work just grew and grew. And eventually, I just sort of got sucked into it. The shelter needed help. The shelter needed more fundraising. The shelter needed a newsletter. The shelter needed a website. And so I just started helping and then eventually started working there and became the executive director. And my passion for that work has never diminished. It's been a good long run and I cherish the work. I find that is very interesting with many of the folks that I interview, myself included. It was more of not a determined and destined path that we're taking, but it seems like everywhere we turn, a new opportunity presents itself in animal welfare with the cats that we're working with. And so it's like the to-do list just continues to get longer and longer and longer. And we don't have time to think about where we're going. We know we're going, but we're just always problem solving. I feel like we're a group of problem solvers. Before I got full-time into working in animal rescue, I was in the technology world. I was working actually as the director of internet technologies for a large Fortune 500 company. So I had a well-established career. But when I really absorbed how many animals were losing their lives in our nation's shelters, and I was really primarily focused on my own local community here in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, when I knew and learned how much killing was happening in our shelters and how well-funded those shelters were and how little they were doing to step up and solve that problem, I said, you know, I'm a smart guy. I've made it, you know, to the top levels of Fortune 500 corporate America. I can take this on. And I decided to become the executive director of this shelter for a minimum five-year commitment so that I could change that. And that really was my goal, was to end the killing in shelters locally. That, of course, just 
grew exponentially at when the no-kill movement came in after that and shelters started becoming no-kill across the nation. So it just sort of I got swept up in it. So it sounds like at some point in time, you sort of had a bit of a light bulb go off. When was that, that you embraced that whole no-kill philosophy or wanted to make change in your own local area as well as across the country? There were a lot of light bulbs over a lot of different years. (laughs) The first one was really a rather life-changing, profound experience. A friend of mine who is a veterinarian who was hosting a conference at the University of Minnesota on the topic of so-called pet overpopulation. And she gave to me a video shot by a gentleman by the name of Sheriff Barnes. I forget where he was. It was like North Carolina or South Carolina. And he ran an animal shelter down there. And they were a very high kill facility. And he had sort of clearly the old mindset of animal control. So they weren't doing a lot of adoptions. They were doing a lot of killing. And He blamed the public for it, as many people do. People aren't spaying and neutering, so we have to kill animals, was the story. But he got so sick of it that he filmed the euthanasia procedure. He filmed the barrels full of dead animals at his shelter. He filmed the rendering truck coming and picking up these 50-gallon drums full of animals and dumping them into the back of the rendering truck. And he broadcast it on cable television. So my veterinarian friend hands me this video and says, can you edit this into an opening for the pet overpopulation conference? I took on the challenge and did what I would call an elaborate video, which required a lot of editing and a lot of very precise edit cuts set to this really intense classical music. So I ended up watching that video over a period of weeks, hundreds and hundreds of times. And as that was happening, something about it just seeped into my soul. Was that in the early 90s or late 80s? That was 1999. And by the time I finished that video, I decided this is something that I have to do something about. I will go to my grave upset if I don't take this on. And so what I didn't know at that point is that pet overpopulation doesn't actually exist. Shelters like Sheriff Barnes Shelter can do things to stop that killing that the typical boogeyman that we blamed for the killing weren't true. So it's been a series of learning along the way. I'm thrilled to have the knowledge that I have now because back then we didn't know what shelters needed to do to solve the problem. We just knew it was an unacceptable situation, but we didn't really know what we had to do. I refer to myself as being born and raised no kill. I started with an organization in 1994 that has been no kill from its beginnings. And you become a very active problem solver when you have that mindset going into any sort of sheltering situation. And that may have been an easier way for me to approach animal welfare than others who have maybe had other options out there that didn't think about, oh, well, let's add another foster home or let's trap, neuter and return this group of cats and then bring them in to adopt them out if they're friendly when we have room at the shelter being really inventive in our solution making, it sounds like you are now actively doing some consulting work. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I work with any agency that's interested in reducing 
killing in animal shelters. And that can be a municipal body that contracts with me to evaluate their shelter, look at their policies, practices, and protocols so that they can reduce or eliminate any killing that takes place. I will work with advocates in the community who are trying to bring reform to their community in terms of political activism in order to get the leadership on board. So I really have an interesting and eclectic cross-section of clients, ranging from very small little rescue groups to private citizens working on ad- to do advocacy and all the way up to and including some large municipal agencies. If you like the Community Cats podcast and would like to help promote Community Cats in your state, then we need you. We're looking for a couple of people from each state to be Community Cats ambassadors. What do you get by being an ambassador? You'll be mailed a promo kit of items to use to help promote the show at any event that you attend in your state. If you don't attend many events, hey, that's okay too. Do you have a network of people that love community cats? You can help with email and groups in your state to let them know about the CCP and offer them the benefit of community cat swag. The more we can spread the word about the show, the more we can do to help cats across the country. Please email Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at communitycatspodcast.com if you'd like to represent your state. Thank you. Does your organization not have a clear vision of what its goals and objectives are? Does it seem like everyone on your board has a different idea of what you should be doing and how to do it? Well, I can help you with a visioning workshop. I offer affordable, quick and painless strategic planning services for a small organization. I can even offer my services virtually. Are you interested? Just reach out to me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at communitycatspodcast.com. And what do you think is the spark that gets an organization to sort of see the light, I guess, and want to make change? It varies. It depends on the individual people. I do believe that the most important thing that they realize is that the status quo in shelters, in most shelters, is not necessary. And that the killing that takes place is harmful and costly and damaging. I think of it as both a sickness and a symptom of a broader sickness. So in the broader category, I look at it as, gosh, our community, our society is not tending to our animal companions in a responsible, reasonable way. And that includes our government officials and our shelter leaders. But it's also, so it's a symptom, but it also is in a way its own sickness that has with it its own set of symptoms. You know, volunteerism at shelters plummets when there's a lot of killing that takes place. There's a lot of angst and anxiety in shelters when that's happening. Or the shelters go out of their way to cover up the killing so people don't know about it. And that results in organizations misleading their donors and a whole lot of other bad symptoms result from it. And when you end the killing, all of those stresses, all of those struggles, all of those symptoms disappear for the most part. And so getting people to realize that they can have a healthier community 
more volunteerism, more donations at the shelter, increased revenue in better feel-good experience working at the shelter, lower shelter turnover, all these great things happen when you make that switch. And I think it takes somebody in leadership to see that and have that spark and realize we don't have to do it like we've been doing it. We can stop blaming the public for the killing that we're doing. We can own it and we can solve that problem because no one else is going to do it. We have to own it. And as soon as the people in leadership over the shelter have that awareness, they can get to work. I think that it's a great response and I think it's wonderful. And I think that this is happening quite a bit across the country, too, as many people see what's happening in communities next door to them and seeing the change that's been going on across the country. I want to touch quickly on just one day, and that's on June 11th. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. It's uh, June 11. It's the anniversary of the first no-kill community in the United States. And it's worth pointing out, we've talked about no-kill shelters, but for me, the big light bulb that went off is realizing that we have to focus on not just no-kill shelters, but entire no-kill communities. Because in the past, a no-kill shelter may have been limited admission. But what we needed to do is bring the open admission animal control shelters on board so that the entire community was no-kill. And that's the transition that got me really excited back in like 2001 was the very first no-kill community. Just One Day is about engaging those open admission animal control shelters um, into a new way of marketing, promoting, and it's a way for them to try no-kill without having to change all of their policies and practices and engage their boards and big, giant policy changes. They don't have to do that. They can sign up. They can very easily try it for one day and see how it works. And if they sign up and take the pledge that they're not going to euthanize any healthy retrieval pets that day, we mail them a media kit that they can use to engage their community in adopting animals on June 11. And as a result, they end up hosting these large-scale adoption events, and we see waiting lines for adoptions in shelters all over the United States. And we adopt out between 10,000 and 15,000 animals that day. And this year, it could be even higher. We have some of the largest animal control centers in the United States actually are participating this year. And we've got about 1,300 organizations that have pledged. And so we're going to have a day of no-kill all across the United States on June 11. And it's an exciting, fun, inspirational event. That day, I spend my day at the computer watching videos and photos of adoptions from all over. And it's a very emotional day for me always on June 11. So if you are already a no-kill organization, it's pretty much this is open to any organization that would like to participate and celebrate that day. Yes, they can take the pledge and they can take it for just one day, or they can take it now until forever. Even small rescue groups can take the pledge. And we ask them to reach out to their open admission animal control that are typically destroying animals and offer to take more animals out that day and to engage their community to adopt more into homes. Because the thing is, we now know what causes 
shelter killing. And it's largely the fact that shelters and rescues are not inviting. They're oftentimes not friendly to people wanting to adopt. And by inviting them to the table with open arms and embracing their community, there are plenty of homes for the animals that are in our shelters. And we prove it on just one day. There's a whole no kill toolkit. You mentioned that you started a very large scale TNR program and any community with an open admission shelter needs very, very aggressive trap, neuter, return, targeted TNR, as well as foster care for kittens and the tiny tigers that are out there. So there's so many different prongs out there for success in a community, and it can happen extremely quickly. I'm in Vermont. I've done most of my work in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts, most shelters have live release rates over 90% and would be statistically considered no-kill. And we probably can talk for another hour about the statistics and what that all means. I can definitely say, based on my knowledge, the situation for shelters in Massachusetts for cats is quite excellent. But there's so many components that need to happen beyond that one day to, to really make an impact. Just one day is, you know, instead of having to boil the ocean, so to speak, and absorb the complete, I mean, because we're asking shelters to have a complete culture and paradigm shift. And that change is hard for people. And so this is an inviting, easy way to engage them to begin that transformation. So it's so inspiring to see them taking that first step by taking the pledge to participate in just one day. Based on your experience working with so many groups all across the country, what sort of changes have you seen for community cats over the last 10 years? And what do you see going forward? When I started the TNR program here in Minnesota, there really were no TNR programs. And TNR was really frowned upon and poo-pooed by many of the large national organizations. That's how long ago it was. Um, So now it's There are TNR programs all over this state and all over the nation, and it really has become largely the default position for managing community cats. And I think that that's a remarkable change. I think there's been a lot of education in terms of what's the real impact of community cats versus the sensationalized hysteria around them. And I think that people are letting go of that sort of sensationalized hysteria quite a lot and are really embracing TNR as a real viable option. And I think that wherever that happens, you see shelter killing drop, you see community cats that are having less negative impacts on their environment, less nuisance problems. I think that that's one area of the no-kill movement that has been very successful. And frankly, I don't believe a community can get to no-kill without a very robust TNR program. I would agree with that. So, Mike, if folks are interested in finding out more about the work that you do or just one day, how would they do that? The best and easiest way is to look us up on the web. They can find No Kill Learning at nokilllearning.com. And Just One Day at their website is justonday.ws. And the one is spelled out O-N-E. So justonday.ws and nokilllearning.com. That's June 11th, and you can go on the website, and you'll see all these maps with all 
these little arrows for all the different groups that are all signed up. It's a really fun website to take a look at too. So Mike, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I just encourage everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what their position, if they're just a private citizen, whether they work in government or whether they're a volunteer at a shelter, there's something that you can do to move this conversation forward. We've made incredible progress. When I got into this work, shelters were killing an estimated 10 million animals a year. Now we're down to about, depending upon which source you trust, it's two and a half million, which is a dramatic improvement over those years. It's a huge improvement, but there's still two and a half million lives to save. And so there's still work to do. No matter who you are, there's something that you can do in your community to help. So get involved, get engaged, and you can start that process at justoneday.ws or nokilllearning.com. Mike, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. That would be fun. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 